0: Welcome to the Wildscast. On this episode of the Wildscast, we begin a new three-part series on the relationship between religion and science. Our first guest in the series is Rabbi Dr. Natan Slifkin, otherwise known as the Zoo Rabbi. Can you believe in both Torah and evolution? How can a study of the animal kingdom help us remain faithful to Judaism and still believe in science? Here are answers to these questions and more.
1: Okay, we are live on the WildCast, MGE's podcast. Thank you all for joining. I am so excited about our guest and about this three-part series, Science and Religion, Friends or Foes. Uh, We are going to explore some of the most fundamental and important questions that we have as curious Jews. Rabbi Natan Slifkin is my guest on the first of this three-part series. Uh, Rabbi Slifkin is the director of the Biblical Museum of Natural History, in Beit Shemesh Israel where he is coming to us live right now um the museum is all about and he is all about animals found in Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible Uh, Rabbi Slifkin is born in Manchester England spent many years of study at various yeshivot in Israel and uh, he also has a uh, besides rabbinic ordination he has a master's degree in Jewish studies from Lander Institute in Jerusalem is currently working On a PhD in Jewish history at Bar Ilan, is that still current? We're still working on that.
2: Already got it, thank God. I guess you're working off an old bio.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mazel Tov, and we just moved Rabbi Slifkin up to (laughs) Rabbi Doctor Slifkin, uh, who wrote his dissertation. It says writing, but I'm going to say who wrote his dissertation on rabbinic encounters with zoology in the 19th century. Rabbi Slifkin is is often called the zoo rabbi because he teaches extensively on Judaism, science and zoology. He has run many programs, including one for MGE. Uh, I think it was at the the Bronx Zoo, and he does a lot of uh, programs at natural history museums. He is a prolific author and writer. He's written numerous books on the topic of Judaism and the natural sciences. Um, I am a huge fan of his books, and I would encourage you to go on biblicalnaturalhistory.org. I know that's a mouthful biblicalnaturalhistory.org where you can get some of his books and he also maintains a popular blog, Rationalist Judaism. Welcome Rabbi Slivkin.
2: Hi, it's great to be with you.
1: Thank you so much for being here. So let's get right into it. And, And before we actually get into some of the apparent contradictions between religion and science, between Torah, Judaism and science, which you're an expert on, tell us what drew you to the world of science? Um, And what value you as a religious Jew, as an orthodox rabbi, see in studying science?
2: Well, my connection to the topic of Judaism and science really came through uh, zoology. Uh, You know, my whole life I've been fascinated by animals, which is how I ended up running the Biblical Museum of Natural History. And um, it's about 20, uh, 28 years ago when I started uh, studying topics to do with Judaism and the animal kingdom. And I've always been interested in the more unusual animals. I'm not so much a dog and cat person. I'm more mm-hmm. a kind of crocodile and hyena kind of person. And, and therefore, I was particularly interested in, in dinosaurs, of course. And, uh, and, th- and therefore, in the famous you know, question about how to reconcile dinosaurs and the antiquity of the world and then in turn evolution with Judaism. So it was really you know, the interest in zoology that brought me to these Torah science topics. You're asking in general, how are the, the role mm-hmm. of science in Judaism? So first of all, Judaism has very much always encouraged us to draw inspiration from the beauty and wonder of the natural world. I, I mean, uh, Scripture itself is full of references to all kinds of phenomena in the natural world, and, and also general statements about how we should be uh, inspired by contemplating nature. So that's very much uh, one part of it. Uh, but also, and this gets on to the more of the uh, controversial topics, You know, the clashes between Judaism and science, uh, there's very much been a strong school within Jewish thought going back many, many, many centuries, uh, most famously espoused by Ramba, by Maimonides, uh, but also by many, many others, which is that God works through nature.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: God mm-hmm. works through nature, and therefore we should expect to find naturalistic explanations of phenomenon because that is how God does things. And that this is the greatest you know, demonstration of his, of his wisdom. So uh, it's, you know, it's an unusual approach for many people. Many people think religion is about looking for the supernatural, looking for the miraculous. And there definitely is that stream of thought within Judaism also. Uh, but, the, but there's also this other one, which I personally align with much more, the Maimonidean, Maimonidean rationalistic approach, which is to see God as working through nature.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that you, you bring that up because that the, the mitzvah of Ahavta HaShem Elokecha, we say it every day in the Shema, to love God, right? So Maimonides says, how do you come to love God? And explains, just like as you were describing, that by studying science, by studying nature, you can bring yourself to a higher appreciation. Um, is that how you came to your belief in God. I'm just so curious on a personal level, why someone like yourself who's so well-schooled in zoology and science, um, believes in God. Is, is it, is it, is it through your love for animals and the world of well, science?
2: You know, I was fortunate enough to be brought up with religious. So it's believing mm-hmm. in God that, that came first. I would certainly say though, that, that my faith has been, uh, enhanced, uh, tremendously. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, I, I, really living inspired all my life just after you know many decades studying about animals there's no end to the things that I always discover which I always find so incredible uh, in the animal kingdom and for me for personally on, on a very personal level my faith also has a lot more to do with how I perceive Jewish history and how I perceive uh, you know providence in my own life mm-hmm. you know, growing up as a again this is very personal but growing up as a little boy in a Jewish boy in, in Manchester, England. When I said I wanted to have a zoo when I grow up, you can imagine how people laughed at me. They thought that wasn't going to happen. Certainly not a job for a nice Jewish boy. And then when I said I wanted to become a rabbi, that was even worse. Certainly not a job (laughs) for a nice Jewish boy. (laughs) And lo and behold, here I am at the age of uh, 46 uh, as a rabbi, but also running effectively a zoo. I mean, uh, the Museum, the biblical museum of natural history, it's a bit of a misnomer because half of it is actually live animals, mm-hmm. but over 100 species of live animals here. Wow, wow! So, uh, I certainly see a tremendous amount of, of providence in my own life.
1: That's beautiful. So, you're living the dream, rabbi and zoologist, and yeah. with an actual zoo. Yeah, and um, so by the way, if I ever look down, it's because I'm writing notes, I'm, I'm okay, using this fine. series. Um, a lot of my podcast series are things that I'm personally interested in, and I've read your books for many years. And so it's not that I'm not listening, I'm just taking notes. So just tell me, you know, I've devoted my life to trying to engaging our less affiliated uh, Jewish brothers and sisters. And as an outreach rabbi, trying to inspire some of my more skeptical, agnostic students with a more of a rational explanation for the existence of God, I've always gone to the teleological approach, which is the argument that That the extraordinary complexity that we find in the physical world, in in human anatomy, in plant life, in animal life, as you're so well versed, implies a deliberate type of creator. Now, I never say that all that complexity and all that beauty proves that there's a God. But what I argue is that it makes more sense um, than the alternative scientific explanation that this complexity and wonder came about all on its own through random mutation, natural selection. Do you agree with that argument? Not that it can prove that science or, or excuse me, nature or the, these crazy animals that you love so much and study, that it makes more sense that there would be a God. And if you do agree with that argument, then why don't more scientists believe in God?
2: So I agree with that argument, but very much in a, mo- in a modified form. Mm-hmm. The, the teleological argument, you know, the argument from design... Uh, is a powerful argument, but it has to be understood in the right way. There's a very widespread mistaken form of the argument, which is, here is a complicated uh, or an amazing phenomenon in the natural world, you know, um, the human eye, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Science can't explain how it came about, uh, therefore there must be a designer. And the mistake with that is that science can explain. science can explain it with evolution. Right? Uh, evolution, contrary to what some people might say, is a very robust framework for explaining how physical phenomena develop. So some people, I and mean, that's why many people dislike evolution, because they feel that it's, um, you know, it's it's painting God out of the picture. But there is an, another form of the teleological argument, much more sophisticated, which is as follows, which is that, yes, science has explained uh, and is proceeding to explain you know, all these different phenomena that were all thought to be you know inexplicable but you have to go down one level deeper what are these laws of science you know we speak about the laws of science where do these laws come from you know who made them why do they have the form that they do you know what i did in my book the challenge of creation was that uh, i collected a bunch of statements from many scientists mainly physicists who, who are speaking about this un, the underlying aspect of nature, the laws of nature. Now, the, the universe that we live in is not any old universe. It's a very special universe. <laughs> you know, it's a universe in which the laws of nature and the fundamental values of certain, for, uh, of certain, uh, constant, certain forces are constructed in such a way that we have a universe with structure, you know, with planetary systems, which can uh, develop, uh, support life, develop intelligent life. That's a very, very special kind of universe. Now, in most, in the overwhelming majority of conceivable universes, you wouldn't have any of this thing. You know, in order for the fundamental forces in nature to be able to combine and react in such a way that energy is turned into matter and matter turns into planetary systems and planetary systems can produce life, that requires a very, very special kind of universe indeed. So that is where the argument from design uh, lies. Not in how do how do you explain this particular phenomenon in the natural world, this particular structure, this particular species, this particular organ. but Rather, how do you account for the underlying laws of nature, which enable such a universe to evolve?
1: So I just want to get this straight. So it's not that, oh, the eye is so sophisticated. I love that you use the eye because um, I happen to be fascinated by the human eye. And I think it's a great I've always said it's such a great indication of something greater you're saying it's not about the eye it's about the underlying laws of nature that give rise to different parts of the human right.
2: exactly that at the end of the day you have such a thing such an extraordinary thing of a human eye right that we can map our surroundings in our mind right you know that's a very special kind of universe that's those are very special laws of nature that enable such a, such a universe to develop
1: I got gotcha. you. I mean, is that such a fundamental distinction? Can can you?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, you'll find simplistic and, in my opinion, very badly mistaken uh, books that attempt to inspire people's faith. You know, mm-hmm. I saw one that was um, discussing uh, uh, bird migration, saying, you know, how is it the birds find their way every winter uh, to w- where they need to get to? And it was, you know, it was trying to poke holes at various scientific explanations, and it said, you know, here's where you see a creator. And that's absurd. What? You think of the God? God who can make a bird hatch from an egg has to reach in and point birds in the right direction every winter. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, there's scientific explanations for it. And if we haven't discovered them yet or if they're flawed, we'll find the correct ones. But certainly there are. Right? So, uh, you know, it's making you know, a God of the gaps. You know, there's a gap in our scientific knowledge, and that's where you see God. Uh-huh. And that's uh, it's, it's theologically ridiculous. You know, God can do all these things through science. Um, and again, so it's a very profound and I think a very important distinction, seeing God in, in the laws of nature.
1: And do you, oh, thank you for that distinction. That's that's really helpful. Now, one of the more popular challenges to the teleological approach um, is that with the enough time, with the passage of enough time, the complexity of our physical reality, uh, even life itself can develop on its own through evolution, random mutation, natural selection, right? The great Stephen Hawking's uh, invoked what's called the infinite monkey theorem that if you have enough monkeys hammering away on typewriters, if you give them enough time, like billions of years, eventually one of them will come out with a beautiful Shakespearean sonnet. I mean, is this true? And if if it is true, how how much time would that would that require?
2: So that's a response to the the old form of the teleological argument, right, uh, of trying to uh, prove God from the complexity of nature. But with this form is immune to that, because I'm not talking about the complexity of nature. I'm talking about the underlying laws of physics themselves, Mm -hmm. right? So the the only response to that, and there is a response, the response to say is, okay, you know, so the laws of nature are extraordinary, uh, the laws of the universe, but maybe there's an infinite number of other universes, all of which which have, you know, different types of scientific laws, and we just happened, and obviously life would only develop in the universe that has the right kind of laws, but maybe there's an infinite number of universes. So there's two responses to be made for that. Is First, that the, uh, by the
1: way, if I can jump it, that's the multiverse theory?
2: Yeah, that, yeah. Okay. So there's two responses to be made for that. First is, okay, it's possible. You know, but then you're talking about sheer speculation. You know, there's certainly no evidence for uh, an infinite number of universes, all the different types of laws. That's one response. And the, uh, and the second response is that even if there's an infinite number of universes, there still has to be a, a meta <laughs> structure which allows, us, allows for this infinite amount of universes to develop, so it hasn't even necessarily solved the problem.
1: Mm-hmm. And what would that meta structure be for these infinite universes?
2: Uh, you know, also, but also it would be something, you know, extraordinary because it, it allows for a universe such as ours. You know, it's all, you know, it's so speculative uh, that, you see, once you start talking about the laws of physics and the unique nature of our universe... Um, it becomes clear that while you haven't you haven't proved God, but you've certainly rooted it rooted belief in God in a very uh, reasonable and logical basis.
1: Right, and and so and maybe you're answering this already, but so do you believe we can simply reconcile modern day evolutionary theory? with torah with judaism by simply oh, saying yeah, that's that,
2: easy <laughs> i mean well, there's all kinds yeah. of uh, challenges that the modern science rates for, uh raises for judaism i certainly don't have answers for all of them but uh, the, the irony is that evolution which so many people see as being the biggie is the easiest one of all mm-hmm. because you know and, and there's different aspects of evolution there's the the conflict with the literal reading of scripture right which is very simple to solve because you know for Many, many centuries, Judaism has taken the approach that the account of, of Genesis, is not to be interpreted literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some people have the conceptual problem, but we've already addressed, you know, saying that God works through nature. In fact, I'll tell you how I came on to evolution. You know, I say I was raised Orthodox, uh, very Orthodox. And originally, I'd absorbed this idea that we don't believe in evolution. Uh, so I didn't believe in evolution. The reason why I came to it was that I was in uh, yeshiva in Jerusalem. In the Mary Yeshiva, and I was studying uh, works by, um, it was actually of Hezcal Levenstein, certainly not somebody involved in science in any way, but he was writing about how the, the idea of seeing God through nature, that it is better to see God through nature than to see him through miracle, mm-hmm. and how God prefers to work through nature, that God doesn't think, do things randomly and haphazardly, he does them systematically. God works through nature. So then it occurred to me, oh, well, when it comes to the development of animal life, presumably also God didn't just go, you know, shazam, zap, but also did it in a systematic manner. And that's when I came to accept uh, evolution. Then I found fascinating writings by Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch uh, of the 19th century, who writes about how if evolution is proven, and he was writing when evolution literally had just been proposed a few years ago, a few years earlier, it seemed very speculative. He said, if it's ever proven, it will attest to God's creative wisdom. An interesting phrase, creative mm-hmm. wisdom. Instead of separately creating everything, God creates a system of laws that enable life to develop as we see it today.
1: Interesting. So, so is, is it fair to say that that God used evolution to develop things into the way we see yeah, them today? Absolutely. And, and can you say the same thing? That's in terms of maybe the complexity of the universe, but can you say the same thing to reconcile big Bang theory um you know that um, that that to say that that God created the world with a big bang,
2: yeah, well, big bangs just simply means that you know the universe developed from a singularity, and that's certainly you know consistent with classical Jewish belief about the universe having a beginning
1: okay, so let's get into this then you because you just um you just started on this about the age of the universe, and you point this out in your book, and by the way, everyone who's listening to this. It's an extraordinary book. I read it years ago, and I just started reading it again. The Challenge of Creation, that Rabbi Slifkin authored. And you write in there that there's a serious conflict, obviously, between the literal reading of the Torah, which puts the world at less than 6,000 years, Mm -hmm. and mainstream science, which holds that, uh, I think you said the Earth is like 5 billion years old, the universe 14 billion. Yep. Um, Now, you make it very clear, and I don't know if you saw this on the news yesterday, but there was um, a, a fossil... That was just found of a certain bird. Did you see this? It was just yeah. I literally I was at the gym yesterday mm-hmm. and I saw it playing. You should check it out because I'm sure you'll be very interested in hearing this. Some um um fossilized remain of a um of a dinosaur that was in an egg or something Oh, that like one, was yeah, strong. yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I saw that story Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool. So you make yeah, it very yeah, clear yeah. that
2: it was a dinosaur embryo that had a, a posture in an egg that was similar to a bird about to hatch from an egg.
1: All right, so they said that they think that that could be a link from the dinosaurs to the modern-day birds. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you you make it very clear that these skeletons, these fossilized skeletons, studies of rings around trees, which I think is fascinating. Uh, you also mentioned sediment on the base mm-hmm. of certain lakes in the world, ice layers, that all of this provides solid scientific evidence of a world that's obviously much older right. than 6,000 years. So Mm-hmm. What's the best reconciliation of this apparent conflict of the age of the universe, in your opinion?
2: So, again, this relates to what I said earlier, how Judaism has long maintained that the account of creation is not to be interpreted literally. Uh, in fact, according to, to Rambam, to Maimonides, the six days, it's not even a sequence of time. It's not even that each day represents billions of years. It's a, it's a conceptual conceptual account of the creation of the universe designed to teach theology, not science. You know, science is great. I love science. I spent my whole life studying it, but that's not what Torah is out to teach. Torah is out to teach religion, specifically ethical monotheism.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and in general, it's an important approach. You know, I think the same goes for evolution. You know, when God's saying that, sorry, the Torah is saying that God created animals, created man from the ground, it's not to be interpreted literally, in fact. And, and some people you have a hard time accepting it, but really that, I'm talking about some religious Jews, uh, many religious Jews, but it's something that's really uh, taken as a given elsewhere in Judaism. I mean, what's the blessing that we make in bread? Right? Hamotzi lechem min which literally means that God has taken bread out of the ground. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, in three and a half thousand years of Judaism, nobody ever understood it that way. <laughs> nobody ever thought that God actually plucks bread out of the ground. Obviously, what the blessing means is that God created the universe with processes uh, in which, uh, you know, man farms wheat and harvests it and there's an entire process and eventually ends up with bread. But because God created the universe in which that is possible, we we summarize it as, you know, we're blessing God who takes bread out of the ground. And the same is true with the biblical description of God creating man and animals from the earth. It's not literal. He's not plucking them from the ground. It means that God created a universe in which life could develop.
1: So this is different. This is different than saying, well, we don't know how long each day was. It couldn't have been more. You know, a lot of people say that, uh, give that kind of reconciliation. and mm-hmm. kind of answer that the first day could have been a billion years. The second day yeah. could have been 10 billion years. You're saying that according to the Rambam, that that creation story in Genesis, in the book, in the, in the beginning of the Torah, is there to teach us ideas. Right. The fact that so how do you explain according to the Rambam, then like the sixth? Because clearly the, the, the Torah talks about six days of creation and God right, rested absolutely. on the seventh.
2: Absolutely. So I can't explain it in full detail. Obviously, you'll have to read my book, Challenge of Creation, <laughs> for that. Uh, available at biblicalnaturalhistory.org. Um, but uh, briefly, you know, the conceptual ideas are that it's a short period of time in which God sets the stage, man appears, and then history begins. The idea being that our actions, our existence has consequence, we're not a significant blip in history. Uh, we're, you know, We're center stage. And in terms of the sequence of events in those days, it's very interesting. You know, we, you try to match it up with science and it doesn't work. You've got the, uh, the sun appearing, you know, af- after uh, plant life. Your plants appear on day three, the sun on day four, and so on. And, and, when you, and it, this reveals, again, that the flaw of the approach of trying to match up Genesis with science by saying each day is a few billion years. The sequences don't match up. And people try to make the match up. You know, they do creative reinterpretations of the words, which don't really do justice from any kind of linguistic perspective as the meaning of the words. But also, more fundamentally, it's you know, what are you trying to do to reinterpret Genesis to make it match science? So, what happened for the last few thousand years before people reinterpreted it that way? Mm-hmm. Uh, then you, you're making out that Genesis ne- never had any point because it was never teaching anyone anything correctly. But we have to look at what Genesis was really teaching in terms of, of theology. Now, we know that it's it's out to teach ethical monotheism, you know, to counter paganism. And the truth is that Genesis has been so successful at doing that, right? Judaism, and indirectly through Christianity, uh, through Islam, has so successfully spread the, the notions of monotheism that, that we can't really imagine, you know, what the world looked like before that. And even something as simple as God said, let there be this, let there be this, and all these things came into existence, it's, it's radically different from how the ancient world conceived of the universe coming into existence. In antiquity, they conceived of it as being all these different powers, and there's a whole clash of the titans, all these different deities fighting it out. And from that chaos, not, uh, a world gradually emerges, but still controlled by all kinds of different forces. And so here comes Genesis, and it's just one God, and he makes everything. And then in terms of the sequence, you, know, you have to remember these things in creation are things that people actually worshipped, and especially the sun, right? The sun... Big, powerful God there. Everyone worshipped the sun God. And comes, comes along in the book of Genesis. And this is something that that Raalberg, that Gersonides points out. And the, the sun doesn't even make the top three. Right? Mm-hmm. The sun is uh, demoted to day four after the plants. Right? Well, you certainly expect to see the sun before the plants. But now in Genesis, it's demoted. And Gersonides suggests it. this is, you know, it, it's the deliberate attempt to demote the significance of the sun. Mm-hmm. So we're not looking to, uh, you know, reconcile Genesis with science. We're looking to uh, appreciate the point that Genesis is out to do something very different. Genesis is out to teach theology.
1: And is the Rabag, the rabbi you just quoted saying that somehow the Torah is making a statement that plant life is more important than, let's say, the sun because it's, it's putting not, it before?
2: It's not to push up the importance of plant life. It's to push down the importance of the sun.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, could you say, I don't know, he's not suggesting because we have more to do with plants than we well, I don't know if that's true. No, no, true.
2: no, no. He's saying it's a deliberate attempt to demote something that was worshipped as a primal ah. deity of supreme importance. Okay,
1: okay that's... And,
2: okay. You know, in a similar note, it's like, what do you do with dinosaurs? Where does the Torah mention dinosaurs? So uh, so what have you heard as the answer to that question, where dinosaurs are in the Torah?
1: I don't know. I don't know where it's in the Torah. It doesn't have people, to be in the Torah.
2: Right, so some people say Tani Nim. Right then, Genesis it speaks uh, about the great Tanninim. Have you heard that? Yeah. The, t- yeah. the Tannin are reptiles, and it speaks about the great reptiles. So that's dinosaurs. Wait, you still with me? I think there's something that appears to have gone on with the tech here, and I'll keep speaking. Hopefully, we're still recording. And so, so some people say, ah, we have a reference to uh, dinosaurs in Genesis, but in fact, it's it's wrong. It's badly mistaken. You know, when, I, when people ask me where dinosaurs are mentioned in the Torah, I say that you know, they're mentioned in the same place that the Torah mentions kangaroos and iPhones. You know, these are things that are not relevant to the initial audience of the Torah. Right? Torah's binding for all times has relevance for all times, but the packaging of the Torah certainly has to be relevant to the generation that received it. And for them, things that were irrelevant were iPhones, kangaroos, and dinosaurs. So we shouldn't expect dinosaurs to be in the Torah. But then we have the question: Why is the Torah speaking about these great tanninim, uh in Genesis? And the answer is that Tani-nim, it doesn't mean reptiles; it, it means it, it's talking about creatures in the sea, and it means sea monsters. And the sea monsters, you know, who knows what's down there? Whales, giant squid, all kinds of fearsome beasts. Everyone's always known that the most gigantic and terrifying, awesome creatures in the world <laughs> live in the ocean. <laughs> so it comes along Genesis. And it says, these, you know, these sea monsters, these things that people are worshipping, and they were. We know that. People in antiquity were worshipping these creatures. Uh, they were even called tanin in certain other creation legends. No, these are just something else that God created and stuck in the ocean.
1: But let me ask you a question then. So you're obviously not a fan of all of these. Let me just put this back in here. You're obviously not a fan of all these other explanations. You know, there's this yep. famous Midrash that gets invoked in part of our rabbinic literature. That God created hundreds of worlds before He created the world in which we live, and some people like to suggest, ah, oh, maybe all of these fossils and skeletons that we see that are dated to millions of years ago—it's one of those worlds that God created and then, and then subsequently destroyed. You're, you're not a—you're not a fan of that, I assume.
2: Correct. Um, correct. <laughs> not a fan. I'm, I'm a fan of the fact that it shows that uh, traditionally Jews were always open to the idea that there's a lot more going on than the simple text of Genesis would imply. So in in that regard, it's very valuable, but those kinds of approaches don't actually work for, for putting together Genesis with science.
1: Right. So if, and, and, and you can't make the claim, I'm just curious about this, that, you know, um, I'm not a scientist, so, and you've studied a lot more than I have. So we know you feel very confident that the world of science has solid evidence that, uh, let's say, the plants came before the sun. Okay, because we we the other have way, to, the other way. Oh, sorry. The, other
2: way the sun came before plants. The yes. sun
1: came right now. Right. Oh, sorry about that. That mm-hmm. you know the, the tower. The tower changes the sequence. So, in other words, and and how do you know when science is so solid that you, you say, listen, we have to then take the Torah, we can't read the Torah literally, because the Torah read literally is going to conflict with solid science. So how do you know solid science from like a theory
2: science? Okay, so, so like a complicated discussion. And there's certainly areas which are gray areas. Um, uh, but the things we're talking about here are things which are very, very basic. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that, like I showed in the book, you know, the fact that the universe is a lot more than a few thousand years old, that's not speculation, that's not theory, that's something which is very, very well established. And and it doesn't make a difference. Is it 10 billion? Is it 15 billion? As soon as it's more than a few thousand years old, right, right there, you've got a conflict. With uh with Genesis that you have to solve. Right. right. The, event, the evidence is overwhelmingly clear that it's a lot, lot more than a few thousand years old. So it doesn't make a difference exactly how old it is.
1: Right. And 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 let's go to man again, because that's that's a big question a lot of my students have. Right. So yep. you mentioned it before, God, the Torah tells us that God created uh, man, a farm in Hadama from the dust of the ground. God breathes the the breath of life so Mm -hmm. modern day evolutionists claim that human beings originated from ape-like ancestors is that is that uh, the theory and evolved and evolved and evolved over a period of a few million years yeah so so the way to understand because we don't we want to do i I guess as rabbis right we don't want to keep reinterpreting you know, yeah, wanted...
2: but here's a funny thing. If I can break in, yeah. Here's the funny thing about this. there's many cases, like I said, when there's clashes between Torah and science. Sometimes very difficult, and sometimes we feel that you know we're just resorting to apologetics or reinterpretation. But this one, this one, evolution in general, but evolution of man in particular, mm-hmm. is something where modern science is totally comports with concepts in Judaism that have, that have been around for centuries, for millennia, In particular, And I, let me explain what I mean. You know, for Many, many centuries, way before Darwin, there were prominent Jewish scholars who said that man was created first as an animal and then became a person. Mm-hmm. And they didn't believe that man came from animals, right? because only Darwin figured that out. But what they did say was that there was a two-stage creation, uh, process in the creation of man, that first as an animal and then as a human. And they based it on a few things. One is that if you look at the, uh, the sequence of creation, again, something you see very odd is that things are created in different days. What's created in day six? Man and animals. Now, why can't we get our own day? <laughs> if we're so special, why can't we get our own day? <laughs> and what the answer is, is that man was created first as an animal. And because uh, physically, we are, n- we are not different from animals in any significant way. Okay, a bit less fur, a bit more intelligent, but there no were real crucial phys- physical differences. Physically, but we have the right. potential Physical, but we have the potential to become something much more than a man, than an animal. Now we have free will, we can make moral choices of good over evil, we're held accountable for those moral choices. So we're potentially different from animals. Uh, but if we don't exercise that potential, these commentaries say, uh, talk about Rambam, Ramban, Nachmanides, as well as Maimonides, uh, if we don't exercise this potential, then we are no different from animals. And Maimonides, uh, sorry, Nachmanides, Ramban, uh, makes very uh, you know, incisive observations on the words of the Torah showing that even in the Torah itself, it says that man was first created as an animal, and then only later was he given the potential to become more than that.
1: The Ramban says that that man became... So it was
2: a two-stage process. He was created first as an animal and then given the ability to become human. And again, he's not talking about evolution per se. Right. He's not talking about man coming from animals, but conceptually, it aligns 100%. Right? And it shows that this idea people have that it's, you know, religiously threatening to believe that our bodies came from animals, nothing could be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, classical Judaism has always maintained that man is fundamentally physically an animal and yet has the potential to become more than that. And then certainly on an individual level, it's, it's that case, right? The Mishnah says how we have to remember that everybody comes from a, a tipas Right. Uh, A a putrid drop, a drop of semen that we all start off as something purely physical, you know, with no spiritual component. uh, But we're able to develop that in our lives. We have a, you know, a continually developing process of of spiritual consciousness. And this is what Rabbi Soloveitchik, uh, the Emergence of Ethical Man, he writes about this in great detail, along with many other fascinating things about science and nature and the interplay between them. Now, he writes that uh, Judaism does not see it as being this huge divide between man and animals. Judaism has always rec- recognized that man is fundamentally an animal, but has the potential to become more than that.
1: Wow, that's very powerful. That's very powerful. And none of these rabbis, including the Ramban, are bothered by the text that says that God created man from the dust and blew you know, because you read that, you well, get according that to Ramban,
2: According to Ramban, it would be that God created man from the dust, but then as an animal, and then turned him into a human being.
1: Right so that that that's not like took some dust and then blew okay right. right that's again it's just not reading it literally so god creating man from dust is to teach according to the ramban um that we started out as an animal right and um does he get any more or any other rabbis get any more specific about how long we stayed in that state of no. animal
2: no. <laughs> that
1: would be pretty cool
2: yeah <laughs> no Look, obviously, Ramban living in the, you know hundreds of years ago wasn't thinking in terms of millions of years. Right. Uh, but the right. point is the uh, the point is the the conceptual aspect of it.
1: Is it true that the Ramban also talked about how energy and matter? Um, at some point was all compressed into something as small. Yeah, yeah there's things it... like that.
2: Yeah, but I, I, and I do not like this approach of trying to look for uh, modern scientific truths in the writings of ancient rabbis. Mm-hmm. To the extent that Ramban was discussing it, that was working on his understanding of uh, philosophy, of natural philosophy, the dominant science of his day. Mm-hmm. It wasn't uh, secrets of modern science. I right. think it's a mistake to try and look for that there.
1: I gotcha. Um Wow, this is really, really helpful. Um, t- tell me uh, where um, the animals, let's talk a little about animals. Your, wh- what is where does your oh, appreciation? I love animals. I know that. Like I'm just curious. Um, the animal love, the love for animals came before your deep dive into Torin. I know you were raised in a very Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I was uh, two years old. You know, lots of kids are fascinated by animals, and I just never grew out of it. Um, <laughs> you should. Uh, oh, yeah. Let me just turn the camera around so you can see the other side of my office. Which is yeah. Developing, setting up, a, developing a new museum exhibit here. Oops. Oh. Right, it. You see I mean, that?
1: Oh, that is so cool. What are those things?
2: Those are model Noah's Ark from all over the world. This is a new exhibit we're developing at the museum. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, models of Noah's Ark from all over the world. And I was thinking, you know, what is the the fascination with Noah's Ark? I mean, it's a very powerful idea. It's a story about you know, about conservation and so on. But why is it so popular in art? Like in so many kids' rooms, right? You'll see Noah's art-inspired decor. What is that about? And I think what it's about is, uh, and the animal kingdom in general, is is just such diversity, right? Such incredible range of shapes and colors and sizes and sounds and behaviors and so on. And in Noah's Ark, it's visually presented all together, right? That all that diversity is concentrated in one place. And I think that really occurred to me as... Our museum, the Biblical Museum of Natural History, is, thank God, you know, very, very popular, and we were trying to pinpoint exactly why it is so popular. So, definitely, part of it is that here we allow for much more, you know, up close interaction than you get in a regular museum in a zoo. You know, here you can actually touch all the different exotic animals. So that's definitely a, a part of it. And also, there's a unique educational component. But a, another aspect I think is that it, it's a concentrated experience. You know, our main exhibit hall of the animal world of the Bible. So you've got you know the lion and the hippo and the leopard and the hyena and the bear and then the deer and the gazelle and the oryx and the, all these animals and they're all in one place they're all in one hall. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that's it it's, it's a, when things are concentrated the animal kingdom you see it brings to light the diversity of it and I think it's the diversity of the animal kingdom which is, a, is so incredible. Just the sheer range of of everything of colors of shapes of sizes of behaviors of sounds it's just amazing.
1: And, and do you think? I'm curious your opinion on this. I, I, I'm a lover of animals also. I used to, uh, when I was single, I used to take all my dates to the zoo, mostly the Bronx Zoo. Yeah. And
2: um, my, my wife went to a lot of zoos with me when we were dating. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Does she still go? Does she still uh, go? Yeah. yeah. I, want to say I she don't loves know. animals. I got, I
2: got shut followed. down. I
1: got shut down not only by, <laughs> but when my kids started growing up and they didn't like the smells at the zoo, and I was like, yeah. I used my kids as an excuse to go. But uh, I was always fascinated by the Congo exhibit at the museum at the The Bronx. Bronx. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Congo, and people would literally wait online for two hours. Lines were going around. And what do you think it is that we're so fascinated specifically by apes? Do do you think it's because there, is there some sort of resonance? You know, we talked just before about how we come from animals and and you you showed some rabbinic support for that idea. Um, do, Do you think that, we, we I don't know, just people, and then when when you get in there, you're just like staring at these baboons, literally just,
2: I don't know. Oh, gorillas, things. the gorillas. Uh, well, it's interesting, you know there's a bracha that you make on them? Do you know that?
1: I do know, what is the, the bracha? The, the Gemara
2: says that there's a baracha that you make on certain, two brachas actually. There's one bracha that you make on beautiful creatures, very mm-hmm. beautiful creatures, and that's Baruch Shekacha Ba'ilamo. blessed is the one who has such things in his world. The bracha, you make them beautiful creatures, which is very beautiful parrots. But I'll tell you something funny. We have a very beautiful parrot here at the museum, specifically in an exhibit about that bracha. And he's heard this bracha so many times that he actually makes the bracha himself. He'll call <laughs> out the bracha again That's awesome. Again.
1: Yeah. Oh my God, that's the famous joke about the, you know, you know about that joke. About the guy no, the who goes is- and and he says, um, I can't believe I'm going to be sharing this joke. I had all these serious things to talk to you about. <laughs> the um the uh the guy who goes and 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 asks how much this parakeet is and they say oh you know that's it's a thousand dollars. I said a thousand dollars for a parakeet. He says yeah, but he's able to uh, he knows like most of Chumash, most of like the five books of Moses. He can just parrot it. And like really well, okay, about a thousand. How much is that one? Oh, that one's ten thousand dollars. What can that you know parrot do? And, oh, all he can say all of Mishnah and Shas. And you know the third guy's a hundred because I don't know what he knows, but the rest of them call him Rebbe.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. I've heard that one. That was right. Cute. So our parrot makes that bracha. And then there's another bracha you make, which is a bracha, means blessed is the one who makes, you know, unusual creatures. And the Gemara mentions two animals in particular that you might want to make that bracha on. One is an elephant. Oh, really? Uh, Yes, we've got on the left side
1: The, again. the first, is... The first
2: baruch... one is Baruch Moshana Habriyo. The first one is Blessed is
1: right.
2: who has such things in his world. And the second one is Baruch Mashana Habriyo. blessed is the one who has a, makes unusual creatures. And for that, Baruch the Gemara gives two examples of an elephant and uh, and, a, and a monkey or an ape. Right. so an elephant, you know, obviously unusual in many many ways. Uh, but it, the mention of a monkey there is is interesting. Um, and there it's, it's perhaps, you know, contrasting it with the human, that you're making a baraka, that here is something which is so different from other animals, so similar to humans, and yet still somewhat different from humans, right? Mm. Still uh, no free will, no making moral choices, not held accountable for actions. You know, it's interesting, you know, uh, Jane Goodall living with the chimpanzees in, in, in Tanzania all those decades, studying them, and uh, she noticed that sometimes chimpanzees will kill and eat other chimpanzees. And uh, no one's going to say those chimpanzees should be imprisoned for murder. And no one's going to say, what, the chimpanzees have rights, and uh, the chimp that killed and ate them should be imprisoned for murder. Because we understand chimps do not have any moral obligations. An animal can do whatever it feels like doing, and it's not held accountable. But people do. People do have moral obligations. So there is that contrast between people and animals.
1: Wow. And and going back to the strangeness, Baruch Mishana HaBriyot, God who changes it up, if you will, changes yeah. up, um creations so um what's the explanation for an elephant i mean i get i get the uh it the other one so
2: unusual in so many ways you know the size and the trunk just such an extraordinary creature
1: so any any time we go to the zoo any other animals that in your opinion should fall under that blessing
2: um well it's difficult to know you know uh, is the Gemara mentioning these animals as being the only ones you make that blessing on or is he giving them examples and you should make it on all exotic animals? Another question that some raise is that nowadays, you know, originally that blessing was to be said with God's name, right? But many feel that nowadays maybe we're kind of desensitized to the wonders of nature and Mm. that uh, maybe we shouldn't use God's name now because it used to be, if you saw an elephant, you know, it's the most amazing thing you'd ever seen. Nowadays we're so Burnt out from everything we've seen on TV and so on that we don't really appreciate the wonder. I know with with my groups, it's only you know I lead safaris once a year in Africa, and it's only in Africa that i uh, have have my tell my groups to say it was God, God's name because that's where the whole setting lets you really you know see the elephant, appreciate it in all its wonder where it really stands out.
1: Well, I hope we can get to Israel soon and be able to go to the museum with you as our guide and when you come to New York, but before we finish, I want to ask you a more of a sociological question. Um, yeah. you've scaled different parts of the Orthodox world, um, and oh yes. W- what I, I see that and uh, you, you, you you garner a lot of attention from all parts. I must say that's, that's
2: one way of putting it. <laughs>
1: so uh, so uh, for those of you listening who may not be familiar, you can go online and see some of the controversy that Rabbi Slifkin has aroused. what What do you think? You know, I'm like sort of a poster child for um, Modern Orthodox Yeshiva University. They literally have a poster mm-hmm. of me up at YU. All right, I it. Um, get... It just happens to be now. I'm sure it'll get ripped down and replaced by some other Modern Orthodox rabbis soon. But what do you think, you know, the Modern Orthodox community can learn from the more Haredi, ultra-Orthodox community, and vice versa? What do you think the more ultra-Orthodox community could perhaps learn from the Modern Orthodox? I'm asking you because I think you have a unique position having been in different mm-hmm. parts and lecturing all right. over. Um, what, what do you think about that?
2: Okay, interesting question, which I have not been asked before. Uh, so we go to the first one. What can modern orthodoxy learn from Chawedin?
0: <sighs> hmm.
2: <laughs> okay, all right, I got one. Um, passion, a- there we go. We can learn passion. We can learn passion about Judaism. And can learn that caution, caution about uh, what kind of influences we expose ourselves to. So those are two things that I think we can very much learn from.
1: You think there's a bit of, of of, uh, there's more passion. And and please tell me what you think. Do you think there's more passion in the more Haredi, more?
2: Yeah, yeah, I do.
1: And and more sensitivity or caution about what, let's say, their children should be exposed to as opposed to... Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's pretty accurate. What
2: they themselves should be exposed to, yeah? Yeah. And whereas the strengths of, of modern orthodoxy are, well, a much much greater willingness to confront uh, science, to confront truth, to confront modernity with all the challenges, um, to recognize that uh, you can't just shut yourselves up in, in a ghetto. There's an entire world that we live in, especially in Israel. The differences become very stark where... Uh, it's uh, important to know that there's an economy (laughs) that needs to be supported. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an army that needs to be funded and supported and staffed. And uh, we have to be a part of that.
1: Wow. And and in terms of confronting modernity with all of its its challenges, you know, um, I, I think there are almost like two levels of that. One is just sort of answering questions so you can maintain your faith in the face of let's say, things, scientists or atheists who are claiming, you know, things about your religion. But And and what I really admire about you, Rabbi Slifkin, and what I really want my students to hear as we begin our dissent is, as opposed to just, how can we reconcile so we can continue to live not in cognitive dissonance, right? So we can continue to be you know, Torah-observant Jews, and not close our eyes to the reality of science. I want to go deeper, you know, because it's kind of the way we started our discussion, which is, how can we really use science to become better Jews, to be more religious, and to be more authentic? And you talked about passion. Be more passionate about our Judaism, as opposed to, you know, because this discussion is like, all right, how do we reconcile so we can continue to live on the way we are? Now, I want to know I want to do more than reconcile. I want to know how we can take a deeper dive into science so we could be better Jews.
2: So I would say for that, it uh, comes to retaining and developing a sense of wonder. Because ultimately that is the connection between science and Judaism. Right? Looking at how uh, using it to enhance our sense of wonder at the world <clears throat> and the incredible world that God has put us in. Uh, I think it's a shame that there aren't more Jews who are taking careers in science, in, in scientific research, in universities, and so on. My father, as a of blessed memory, was a was a physicist, uh, and uh, I think it would be great if there were more Jews who became became scientists who were unlocking the uh, secrets of creation. And uh, you know, science is a process of, of should be a process of continued wonder. C- curiosity leads to. Research, research leads, should lead, leads to discovery. Discovery should lead to wonder, which should in turn inspire even more curiosity, more research.
1: It w- was, was your father's faith, if you don't mind me asking, a blessed memory, was his faith um, inspired through physics um, or was it like enhanced? Like you, you described, you know, you were raised in an observant home. You already mm-hmm. were raised to believe in God, but the science enhances your relationship with Hashem.
2: Right. Well, I can't speak for him. I think, uh, like me, it was a, even a more important, significant aspect was history. Mm-hmm. I think Jewish history is really a, a major thing that people don't think about enough. Just the, the sheer wonder of the fact that we're around after thousands of years, that we've returned to our homeland after thousands of years, you know, turned the desert into a, 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 an amazing country. That's just something extraordinary. There's, there's no parallel anywhere else in the history of the world. And that, for me, Uh, It's certainly a major component of of my uh, connection with Judaism.
1: Would you say it's greater? I'm I'm actually arguing that I'm writing a basic Judaism book, and um, I'm putting two things, two, uh, not evidence again, I don't like to use that word, but two great indications of a higher being in the world. Um, And one is science. And the second I wrote, I argue that it's, that Jewish history, to me, I mean, maybe it's a personal thing, is, just, is more compelling.
2: So again, I can think it's, pers- it's personal. I don't think you can put in any kind of objective value on it to weigh one against the other. We're also addressing slightly different things. The science one is, is addressing monotheism, but not any specific religion, religious interpretation, whereas the history one is, is, is addressing specifically Judaism. You know, people relate to different things. I can just say that science speaks to me a lot, but the history one speaks to me even more. Why is that? Maybe because I'm living here. I <laughs> know. I just find it's it's just amazing. And you come across these, you know, so much archaeology here. And uh you know, it's just amazing. You know, I was uh I was just um a few weeks ago doing Hanukkah, I was you know researching you know the writings of of Josephus and so on in Hanukkah, and he describes in detail this is something we're developing to go along material to go along with our elephant exhibit here. Describes in detail you know the battle of the of the Seleucid Greeks with their army of elephants and how it happened literally just a few miles from where I am now at the museum. Uh, it's just it's just humbling and amazing, you know. Thousands of years ago, you had this massive army of elephants <laughs> charging past <laughs> where I am now, and uh, and representing an overwhelming force, right? And what were the numbers? I don't know if you're familiar. i
1: do not a historian. But. Well, the
2: numbers of elephants, there was 30 elephants. But certainly the numbers of the overwhelming force of, of the Greek empire was, was immense. And many people, many nations that were under them just folded and disappeared and assimilated. And you had this one Jewish family from Modiin who says, no, we are not going to assimilate. We're going to stand up for our identity, for our Jewish identity. And against all odds, they triumphed. And remember, had they not done that, had Mattityahu from had not done that, Judaism would have disappeared. No monotheism, Christianity would never have developed. The entire world would have looked different. All right, so uh, you know, you have this family that says, "No, we're going to stand in for a Jewish identity," and then that, and after overwhelming odds against battle elephants, right? And then thousands of years later, we're back here. Just, I just find that an incredible, incredibly powerful thought.
1: It is incredibly powerful, and you're living it, and. Um... We're living it. All the Jewish history is beginning to unfold before our eyes. I mean, uh, that, that is incredible evidence. And and when you talk about archaeology evidence in Israel, you're not talking about archaeology having to do with, you know, fossilized dinosaurs. You're talking about...
2: No, no, no. It's paleontology. <laughs> uh, just speaking, just the fact that we were here, just constantly, you know, coming across different examples of, of how our history here goes back so many thousands of years. You know, how many people are there in the world who could say that uh, <laughs> they've, you know living in a place where their ancestors lived thousands of years ago after having been away from it for so long, you know, it's That's just incredible. amazing.
1: It is incredible. Well, I thank you so much for coming on. Rabbi Slifkin. If there's any other parting um, words you'd like to share, I very much appreciate um, a lot of us very much appreciate your intellectual honesty um, and, and, um, and really trying to find wisdom and truth wherever you find it. And, um, This was an amazing first step into our um, trying to plumb the depths and some of these contradictions. Let me ask you one last question. Mm -hmm. How can we uh, give me some advice as an outreach rabbi? How can we um, further inspire more of our own people, Jewish people, that Torah and science can be working together and are not incompatible and that there are answers to some of what the apparent conflicts are. This new age of atheism, very popular, very aggressive, and we're losing a lot of our brothers and sisters to this. How do we get this message out more? And, and why? And and why isn't this message out there more? And if, if yeah,
2: well, you know, this is really. It should be the other way around that should be a question from me to you because you work in outreach and I don't <laughs> uh, all I can say is that um you know I've researched these topics I, I, I published books uh with what I feel presents the correct approaches and the authentic approaches and in, in terms of uh you know well, the the animal aspect isn't directly you know my museum doesn't directly address the uh topics of evolution and things like that, but I think it's valuable in terms of showing that Jew, as as Jews. We, are, we have a very special connection with the natural world. And one of the things we show in the museum is about how cultural identity, as Jews, we have a cultural identity bound up with, with members of the animal kingdom, uh, with the animals that, that are part of the Bible, the lions and the leopards and, and, and the hyenas and the crocodiles and the hippos, all these things that used to live in biblical Israel. Uh, I think that itself sends a very powerful message not directly talking about Jews and science, but talking about how part of our cultural identity is, is linked, inherently linked with the animals and the natural world around us.
1: Mm-hmm. Would you get on? Um, have you been uh, d- doing any debates or conversations with prominent atheists or, um, or others who deny um, the authenticity, let's say, the existence of God, or the... I'm the... usually
2: debating the people on the other end of the spectrum. I know, you know <laughs> the, what I <laughs> uh, 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 mean. More, the more Haredi Jews who, uh, who disagree with my uh, attempts to resolve and uh, reconcile science and terror.
1: You, you know what I'm thinking, though, and I, I know, you know, I, I keep my mouth shut, we haven't really had a conversation before this, but you would do very well. I think the Jewish people and the world would do very well to have you having conversations with some of the YouTubers out there and others that are making a big splash. And I'm not saying they're talking nonsense. They're speaking, I think, sincerely from their own intellectual perspective, but are not aware of a lot of the things that you and I discussed in this uh-huh. last hour. Um, you know, have you ever considered that? I, I, I think that would be um, great. Really, uh, I would happy Really,
2: really... I've spent many years working on the science uh, Judaism topics. I've kind of moved away ever since I opened the museum eight years ago. So that really takes up all my time and energies and focus. You know, it's very much a growing institution. It's uh, an amazing, I really feel I've like found my calling in life. And uh, that's really where I'm focusing all my efforts right now.
1: Okay, so it sounds like the animals have taken over your life.
2: Yeah, indeed.
1: (laughs) We can't, we can't, you can't save the human realm anymore. The animals have just completely.
0: (laughs) All right. No, but
2: what I worked out though is that really the animals, it's a powerful educational tool. It's really something that can, uh, I mean, you'd have to experience the museum properly to understand what I'm really getting at, but it's a very powerful tool for, uh, for understanding how Jews have this unique role with regard to the natural world.
1: Do you do anything online? If we
0: can't get yes. to Israel, ah, right now you, ask you that.
2: Uh, Starting in a few weeks, uh, a weekly session live from the museum where I'm Ooh. going to be doing a, a weekly Zoom session from the museum each week focusing on a different exhibit.
1: Oh, and how do, how, how do people find out about that?
2: Um, so they should go to the museum website mm-hmm. and uh, send, us, send an email to the office because we haven't yet... I'd I just see on my WhatsApp, our web developer talking about the page launching the page for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not launching. We're launching it in the next uh, few weeks. And but in the meanwhile, they can uh, contact the office to be notified when that program will start.
1: Okay. Excellent. So the website is biblicalnaturalhistory.org. That's Biblical correct. Biblicalnaturalhistory.org, where you can get two things. You can get some information about this. Um, uh, these Zoom sessions on yep. on the museum that can be done virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, Beli there, without taking a vow, we will be in Israel this summer, so let's see if we can figure something out there. But also, if you want to get any Rabbi Slifkin's book, books, um, please go on biblicalnaturalhistory.org. I very, very much recommend you do this, and we get this out there because this is really crucial and critical stuff. Thank you so much, Rabbi Slifkin, for your time. I you. Bless you with continued success and continued insight uh, to bring these two worlds, continuing to bring these two worlds together. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. It was great joining you.
1: It was a pleasure. Have a good one. All the best.
2: Thanks.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wildscast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wiles. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.